welcome to season two of the Shopstool podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all very well. This is episode 19, season two of the Shopstool podcast. As always, I want to start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you today? Very good, Robin. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Can't complain. And Brian, how's everything your side? Very good, Robin. I am great. How are you? That's good. Yeah, yeah. All good on all good on my end. My name is Robin Lewis. Welcome everyone to the show. So today we have a very special guest joining us all the way from North Carolina in the US. Um, he's actually our very first international guest on the show, which is crazy South, when you South Carolina, Robin. South Carolina. <laughs> well, but I thought I was supposed to say North. No, that's just because he doesn't want to sound like a hillbilly. <laughs> <laughs> so our first international guest, which is pretty crazy when you consider we've got one Kiwi, we've got an Irish Kiwi, and we've got a South African living in Australia. I'm quite surprised we haven't had more international guests on the show yet. Um, so he studied uh, mechanical engineering in Glasgow, then moved to the US to continue his studies, graduated and got a job at Oakley in California. On the side, he started his own company, producing everything from CNC-milled whiskey lowballs to furniture, and is now pivoting his business to produce protective face masks in the wake of the COVID-19 outbreak. So a very, very big welcome to Neil Ferrier. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, guys. How are you? Lovely to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry yeah. about the slightly unkempt look. It's, uh, it's <laughs> the quarantine life. I've fully embraced it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in wearing sweatpants and t-shirts every day. <laughs> what, what time is it where you are, um, Neil? We are at uh, some, a little after 9.10 at night. Okay, yeah, so middle of the day here and on the other side of the continent. I think in my current life it's considered as 9.10 in the morning in China with uh, <laughs> protective equipment over there. Um, I seem to be living on mostly Chinese time zone right now. <laughs> We'll get well, into that at the end, I reckon. Yeah, leave, leave super, that, super keen to last. hear about this. Uh, but yeah. I, th- I thought a good place to start would be um, just, you know, for anyone who doesn't know where you're from and, and how you got to where you are, just a quick intro and, and how you got to this point. Sure. I grew up in a small golf town in Scotland called Ochterarder. Um There's a golf course there called Glen Eagles. And I grew up with a father who was in the golf business. He His company designed golf courses Um around the world and he had a a very international job in a town of 4,000 people. So I was very fortunate that I grew up somewhere small and beautiful, but I also sort of had this this father figure who acted and showed that the world was small. Um, So I always had kind of a, a plan or had decided inside myself that it was, it was okay to go off and do something crazy and big after that. And uh, during university, we got given this opportunity to study abroad, um, and I chose Clemson University, mostly because I had I was doing crew uh, or rowing at the time, and I was told that they had 600 miles of shoreline, uh, and that it was sunny all the time. And so, uh, when you're in Glasgow, <laughs> and I, and I was I was used to sort of trying to row through ice on the Clyde River when somebody told me that. I'd, the exact math on deciding to leave was, you know, non-existent. It was like, all right, I'm gone, bye. Um, I did, I loved it, um, and I ended up uh, uh, staying, essentially, at Clemson uh, to finish off my degree. Some complexities along the way of moving uh, over there, but but it worked out okay. And then uh, the the job side of things was, uh, I've never really been wired very normally uh, with regard to work. I've always um, enjoyed people. I've always enjoyed what I would consider to be the deep end. um, And I am terrified of repetitive work. Uh, And I tested all of this out, like during the course of university, I was a caddy, which confirmed that I liked people. Um, You're you're gonna have a really bad round of golf if you haven't gotten kind of rapport with that guy within the first hole. It's just Mm. your next five hours of your life are not gonna be fun. Um, and then I also worked at a water bottling factory for an entire summer and that confirmed the requirement that repetitiveness was not an option anymore. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, Discommon being the name of my company just now is very fitting to all the way back to probably when I was, you know, 14 or whatever. Um, so as I came towards graduating, uh, everybody that was from the Strathclyde side of things uh, in engineering was somewhat driven by that school down the road of uh, oil and gas or things like heating, ventilation, HVAC or uh, Rolls-Royce, the turbine engine company. It was sort of big industry in Scotland, those things. And I just remember having this kind of like visceral reaction to being that's not, it's a, it's a phenomenal career for a lot of people and people will make a lot more money than me doing it. But but in my soul, that was never going to work. It had to be a crazier story or a crazier path than that. I think a therapist would probably have a field day with you know the, the the issues that I've required, or why is it why is it not okay that anything be normal for you? Um, but my, my wife could probably have a long discussion about that as well. But I uh, I then started applying for jobs that I decided were okay for me, which was um, paying golf clubs at the time. Aerial Atom, the there was this crazy um, skeletal race car company. I was trying to work for them trying to get jobs with rally teams and NASCARs and, and I'd always used Oakley's when I was doing sport um, and so I started applying there and uh, uh, it, it that was will always be one of the craziest sort of experiences of, of my life I just remember getting this phone call um, the vice president of Oakley interviewed me on the phone for about three days running and then sort of said what are you doing mm-hmm. on Friday and I specifically remember answering and thinking I shouldn't have answered this. I just said, I'm selling all my dad's golf clubs out of our golf closet in the house to try and make some money because I was <laughs> just like sitting at home in Scotland and I was putting them all on eBay doing quite a roaring trade of weird rare golf clubs that my dad had gotten through the through the years. And they said, you, you want to come to California? I was like, I, uh, yes, sure. Um, so fast forward on, I did uh, basically 11... Uh, 11 years of advanced product development or research and development at uh, Oakley. And that was, I'm not sure how far into that you want me to go, but but that was uh, a baptism of fire like you could have never even uh, predicted. Uh, I specifically told them if I'm coming in, I, I realize I'm the kid, but I want challenged. I want, I want thrown in, put, put me in hard and heavy. Um, and the first project I started working on was a fan goggle for U.S. Special Forces, specifically for Delta Force, that had to be silent uh, for use if it was in a sniping situation or in a, in a wow. silent situation. But it also had to guarantee at the time the Afghanistan war was happening, and it had to guarantee as well that the goggle would never fog. So these guys would drop off a helo and run at what was predominantly a clay house in Afghanistan and the the significant temperature change would cause their goggles to fog and, and then you can get shot. Mm. Um, and so that was, that was pretty... That's cool. That was, was your first project. Score. It was deep. Yeah, it was my first project. <laughs> um, were you and, given like lead design on that? Were you put in a team no, no, or did they just so say, this is, this is your, I've, your baby? I've not been a designer for 10, uh, I was not a designer for 10 years of this. I, uh, we were in advanced product development. The job was to make stuff real. But that actually did become a bit of a design project because there was an existing military goggle and we were essentially told to hack in a fan and the natural thing was to put the fan at the top. It was what was done in one ski goggle that did a similar yeah. thing. But they were, it was awful. It had a double A battery and <laughs> the whole time. And I just decided to call a computer fan company called EBM Pabst in Germany. And we started talking about it and they, they started discussing how their fan works. And anyway... I ended up having a harebrained idea of putting it in the side and sucking air across the face instead of blowing air in. And um, it was actually the first time at the company I'd been there for probably four or five months, somebody said, good idea to me. They weren't very good at giving compliments at Oakley because everybody was like <laughs> supposed to be an alpha. They were supposed to be on their game. Yeah. Um, and first of all, they're all like, well, you can't do that. And it has to be in the top. And I said, well, why does it have to be in the top? We've got more room in the side where that outrigger thing on a pair of goggles is. Anyway, thing thing went to production. Um, 
I visited Delta Force probably five or six times in my life. They go down as some of the more profound experiences. Um, getting chased by a Belgian mal mal whatever that dog is, Belgian malwar, the attack dog. Yeah. Put, put you in a suit and um, they just do it for sport and they say you can run <laughs> if you want but you won't get away uh, and they said if you're a real man uh, maybe you'll uh, if you're a real man maybe you'll not move and I was like I'm a real man I'm like I'm an athlete I'm a real man and man there ain't a human being on this planet that when that dog starts running at you you don't think I'm like Jesus I can run faster than anybody I'm going to start moving <laughs> um, and then a, then a dog hits you uh, but yeah, it was it was it was a cool experience. So that that was basically life at Oakley started at 150 miles an hour and and went from there. So your your main role at Oakley you saw was kind of problem solving, like taking impossible ideas and and making them like trying to find um, production and design solutions to making them real. Correct. Yes, that makes shit real. That was pretty much Make sure that, that was pretty much the job. And so our designers were harebrained. They would all come from automotive industries. Nick Garfius, who's the head of design right now, is still one of my, my fantastic friends. And he uh, was uh, an incredible... Uh, you know, he was in Mercedes, uh, was doing head of concept cars there for a long time. And there were, you know, there were all sorts of other guys that had sort of phenomenal stories of, of design. So the things that they had come up with, you know, there were organic, structures and forms with these flowing bone lines across them that you know truly could only come well i mean to be at that point in time whatever that was 15 years ago they really those surfaces could only be done by pencil to begin with um and then an alias guy um the software alias had to try and figure out how to translate those software uh, those drawings of surfaces into surfaces so yeah we at the time, I thought this was all normal, and I just I would be sent off around the world to try and learn new technologies or to make the thing work, uh, whatever that was. Um, injection molded titanium. We spent two years of of my life doing that, and probably I went to Korea. I went to Chinese military university for that. We went to Germany, Austria, Switzerland, U.S. And Tokyo, um, all to visit titanium injection molding facilities, and then we never even made the damn project real. <laughs> it got killed. <laughs> Oakley, Oakley got bought by Luxottica, and they killed the damn product. It was supposed to be a new X metal. The, the, the was the, the famous Oakley frames that we all grew up with, the Romeo and Juliet, and we were supposed to be bringing X metal back to life. Um, oh gosh, what else? Carbon fiber. I got uh, you know as a car guy, I got to cold call. Uh, Lamborghini, Pagani at the time, Ducati and Sparco, the seat company, all in Italy. And I just never underestimate the power of a phone call that starts with, hi, my name's Neil from Oakley. Uh, and and then just saying, would you mind if I came and looked to see how you guys made carbon fiber? Um, I'm, I'm going to use that the next time I want to get it in somewhere. <laughs> listen, hi, I'm Robin from listen, Oakley. <laughs> joking aside... Um, it was actually really terrifying to leave that. This is like a, this is probably a really good, you know, maybe a segue into something else. But yeah, talk us talk us through how that actually happened. Like, what was the what was the initial path to starting well, this common? So, the first point on that though is the fear of leaving security and and the power that I had developed with my name's Neil, whatever. I run advanced product development at Oakley. I'm part of the design team at Oakley. Whatever your statement was. Um, and the realization that it could open any door or conversation with with a company or a designer or a person, so there was a lot of fear in leaving that. But um, the discommon started. Uh, I started as a blog. It probably still exists somewhere um, on WordPress. Uh, but I was just writing about things that were uncommon uh, that I thought were cool. They were disruptive, and. I'd started to get a little bit more interested in whiskey and I got this bottle that was stuck in Scotland and our CEO at the time, Colin at Oakley, said, oh, I just met this guy from the Macallan at a luxury brands co- conference and he was amazing. You should speak to him. So um, he put me in touch with him. We started speaking, hit it off and 
the guy Ken Greer from McAllen came and visited at Oakley once, and he did. He brought my whiskey bottle over from Scotland. Um, but he also brought a lot more whiskey over with him, and we had a secret bar at Oakley, and we got absolutely leathered, just the three of us. Um, and in the middle of it all, uh, and, and at the time it was when, it was before the Scottish whiskey boom, so we're drinking like 30-year-old Macallan as if it's like, you know, Coke at the time. <laughs> um, which, looking back on it, is traumatic, because I think the bottle of 30-year-old Macallan's about 6000 bucks now or something like that. And Anyway... He just announces in the middle of this, guys, do you think you could create the world's most badass hip flask? And I just remember looking at Colin with like eight-year-old eyes. (laughs) 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 Please. And he said, yeah, Neil, you're on it. Uh, Go, you've got to get this done. Well, Colin was the CEO, but he wasn't my boss. So about three months into this, my boss wasn't so happy that I kept working on this hip flask. Um, because I had like a lot of eyewear to do, you know, and and uh, I managed to sh- hide behind the CEO shield for a wee bit, but eventually it had to be um, I needed to work on it in the evenings, and so I finally said to our were you, CEO, were you, to him, were you staying behind at work to try to like? Oh, I, you, oh, I, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I was using all the resources at Oakley. I was using their CAD guys, and we were three D printing stuff, and everybody just <laughs> yeah. uh, and and Ken at McAllen was a genius because he just kept shipping Oakley whiskey, so nobody can complain <laughs> that much because there was always a lot of whiskey, and they were like, oh, Neil's on that thing again with the stupid flask, and you know, oh, but there's whiskey. But eventually, I said to Colin, I was like, I think I need to. I think I need to do this as a separate thing. Can I, can I like start to come, I might have to charge them money or something because I can't <laughs> do this in Oakley time. And he just said, sure, no problem. Just do it in your evening time. I then didn't have the courage to charge them money for a year. So I literally took payments in whiskey for a year. Um, <laughs> and finally at the end of it, when they started asking me to do other projects, I was like, can we, can I, could I consult to you guys? You know, could I do something like that? I didn't know that I was allowed to do that. I had a job. I wasn't. I had an entrepreneurial spirit, but not business-wise. Not mm, doing something should ask for money. Um, and I remember the first time I did a project was designed of uh, Highland Park's uh, a fifty-year-old whiskey bottle that, through all sorts of random politics, actually only released last year. Um, but I worked on it with the head designer at Ducati. Um, I, I cold called him said hi I'm Neil from Oakley but wait this isn't actually an Oakley project <laughs> <laughs> um, and I remember charging 40 grand to manage and do the entire project and, and felt like my entire life had changed you know like this was a real thing so I battered on with that for a few years and eventually I was doing 2am every day and I had matched my salary at Oakley with consulting income we had a baby on the way and it was just one of these moments of, well, you can't sustain this. Um, so it's the shit or get off the pot, right? Pick one. <laughs> you have to, yeah. yeah, you have to decide. Um, but something I try and talk about a lot now with, with other uh, entrepreneurs or kids in design school or in engineering school or whatever, you know, I have this very fun-looking trajectory and fun weaving path that I've done in my career. Um but I will say uh, I'm quite risk averse and there's actually always been strategy quietly tucked away in the background and I didn't leave Oakley, this is probably not even legal, don't, don't, don't break law kids, but I didn't even leave <laughs> Oakley until I had a retainer set up with a cell phone case company to do product development for them right. um, uh, and actually my last six weeks at Oakley I was uh, I would run out at lunch to have a meeting with the self. But they were 15 minutes away. I'd go, I'd show up at meetings, um, where I'd take a late lunch, or um, I'd go in early to Oakley, and I would have to leave at three in the afternoon. But I'd be going to it was Mofi. I'd be going to Mofi to uh, to have meetings with them and basically just pretend like I was a busy consultant. So it was a fake it till you make it side of it, but it was also quite. Man, I got a family coming. I got to figure out a strategy, a strategic plan for this, and I. I have a lot of fear these days for for younger folks who just assume that Instagram will fix everything for them or having a good portfolio or things like that. And I think an awful lot about strategy. Because it's very, it's very fairy tale to 
to just believe that if you, you know, the, all those cliches, you follow your dreams, you, yeah. if you put your heart and soul in it, you know, and I think a lot of it's got to do with the, the generation that we grew up in, especially in the 80s going in, into the 90s, from a parenting perspective, you were told to tell your kids that they are the most special, precious gem on the planet and they can be anything they want. As oh, long we as were coddled, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, so we grew up with that mindset and yeah, and then a lot of people would fall flat. I might have actually said it before to people on a, I think it was in a, a talk we were doing or something, but, um, yo, listen, like, don't follow your dreams if your dream's shit. Like, <laughs> have, have, like, have a little bit of... <laughs> Have a little bit of strategy and a little bit of yeah, you know, talk to absolutely. some peers, find a business mentor. Like, does my dream have legs? You know, it might be a really bad one. Um, and so, for instance, this common goods that we have right now—that's a terrible business from a financial <laughs> standpoint. Um, you couldn't live off of it. But what it does for us with notoriety and validity of the fact that we're able to manufacture things has more value than it could ever have monetarily. But some folks don't even know we're a design firm and they think that, you know, I live a fairly normal or okay life selling whiskey tumblers and that that gives me like trauma inside. Oh my gosh. If you could see our business account go to 40 grand to two to 65 to three to 40 to one, you know, it's basically makes enough money for us to try a new idiotic thing and then, you know, kind of keep on going. So you're literally seeing the good, the good side of this common as being a business card. 100%. Carrying your brand to potentially bigger jobs. Uh, Yeah. And I, I guess I will tell you there was actually, there was strategy in that as well but um, my original business partner Jeremy uh, who was somebody I worked with at Oakley I said to him Jeremy we can never tell anybody we're a product development company unless we develop products like we can't just advertise that won't work we can't just say we're good and I I said we've got to make stuff Uh, and so we started off this common goods and we had a PR agency from day one and I still have them today um, and that was the sole goal of that was storytelling. We're going to make crazy stuff. You guys have to tell stories about it and you need to get us brand notoriety. Um, and, uh, that was, that was the key. I think to my plan was basically, well, I'm going to tell people we make stuff, so I better make some stuff. So if, looking at some of your products, uh, crazy cool, but crazy different. It's so different. And, my initial thought was it's awesome to have these designs and you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, but how do you know that you can make you, how do you know you can pull something off when someone asks for a carbon fiber table and you, I presume you have never worked with carbon fiber before. So at what point do you say, yeah, I can make that. Do you just say you can do it and then work it out? Or do you like have to do it? But do you do something based off experience for the actual material you think, thinking of using i say yes quickly a lot because i'm game for the challenge yeah but i would also admit that it's usually founded in quite a lot of quick sort of strategic real-time do i have a guy do so firm proponent of network is net worth um, firm proponent of that and so basically our job in a way at discommon is aggregating correct skill sets to 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 solve the problem. Now, quite often I hope we can be the skill set, but other times we're aggregating it in. And, you know, you, you get a heck of a Rolodex uh, after 10 years at Oakley. And, you know, that table, I immediately was thinking about a carbon fiber surfboard company that we had worked with before. I was thinking it's a surfboard, that's the right scale. It's hollow, they use more. Okay, yeah, I, we could do something. And um, my passion and basically my background was materials uh so i there's a current project that's for a hotel group in london that might be the one that breaks me it might it might be the thing that i shouldn't have said yes to (laughs) but but beyond that uh no i probably shouldn't tell all the details but it is a massive massive installation that has to get hung from a roof uh, okay. it's uh, 19 meters long um, and it's all machined aluminum and it's on the uh, 8th or 10th floor of something that's getting built 
Um, and it's not greenlit yet, uh, but uh, we came in aggressively on it, and uh, that one's caused a couple sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> I have um, to say, I think it's really interesting the way you... Because you're effectively like a sole practitioner, but you're so much more than that. Like, there are way too many makers, myself included, that try to do everything ourselves. Like, we create problems and we try to solve them and we end up burning ourselves out by doing that. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting, the strategy that you applied to your business of creating this network of people that you could tap in and out of and build something way bigger than just one person, but still remain agile enough by being just yourself. It's a, it's a really interesting point, Brian, because it's the exact reason why I don't own a CNC machine. Um, mm-hmm. I, I deliberately did it that way so that we are not a CNCing company. Um, mm. but what I also tried to do was basically I tried to just still be Oakley once I left, which was Oakley would just go around the world finding the greatest manufacturers or the best skill sets needed to do or to make that thing real. And I guess it was just kind of wired in me to try and do the same thing. Um, and I basically have three employees. I have my assistant, I have Kevin, who's my head designer, and I have actually an employee in a startup company that we haven't announced anything about yet. Um, it's to do with watches, but not in a normal watch way. Uh, and uh, we, you know, the rest of it's freelancers, and it's again, it's aggregating those skill sets that I've wanted. But man, Brian, I, I think about that point all the time. Uh, this. Part of it is my fear of repetitivity that's kept me away from it, but part of it is my lust for new things, that if I take on a bag project, oh my gosh, I get to go and find an incredible you know, leather bag pattern maker, that, that uh, there are a lot of makers out there who, I mean, my old business partner, Jeremy, actually, I mean, he's, he's got four sewing machines just now, and he just basically forced taught himself how to do the project that he was on. And makers do that, but I just decided like I have to try and stay at thirty thousand feet. I have to try and stay above, and and shape all the the fun that's going on. Uh, otherwise, I was just going to become locked into doing that one thing. However, I'll never be an expert of any of these things now, like you guys are. You know, if somebody wants that thing in wood, when they come to you, um, you know, they just they just know that they're going to get sawdust out of it. Uh, well, they're not going to hopefully get sawdust out of it. Had it been times. But in the same in the same way, it wouldn't phase me in the slightest to take on a massive project for a hotel group in Hong Kong. Tell them I had that, I got this, I know how to do it, and then my first phone call would be to, to Brian. It's like, all right, mate. <laughs> so we need to do a thing. Yeah, um, right. Uh, I just think it's I, that's one of the reasons why I so the disclaimer is that Neil and I actually studied together um, so we were flatmates in Glasgow but that's why I really wanted to get mates you on the is, show I mean flatmates, we're, yeah. we were as close <laughs> to murdering each other as possible a number of times <laughs> we as were well. many times but that's why I really wanted to get you on the show because we have obviously a primarily sort of furniture based woody kind of audience and I just thought it'd be really interesting to bring somebody from still a design background, but somebody that takes a completely different path to, to doing what, what they set out to do. Um, and I think there's something that we could all learn from that. But I'd really love to hear you just talk through some of your furniture projects. So like maybe, maybe tell us about the, the stealth bomber table because it is mad. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, first disclaimer. Furniture is bloody hard, so what you guys do is, <laughs> is very impressive. Um, especially we're we're like we're way deep into a chair uh, right now, and chairs are that is an incredibly cohesive, multi-dimensional thing. This is the one First that's currently thing, on your Instagram, Neil. Yeah, yeah. There, there's some bits yeah. and pieces of an Instagram. Okay, here's my here's my theory about this. Um, this is great. Uh, Mark Newson, um, I actually worked with, with Mark on a random project that hasn't come to the light of day yet, but Mark had um, the Lockheed chairs that he did, and I think there's about 20 of them, and they were these hand-beaten metal chairs. And if anyone's if you, if you, in Sydney, you can see one in um, in the uh, Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. I think they've got one on, on permanent display. Well, so if one goes to auction now, it goes for about 6 or $12 million, somewhere in that region. They're, they're massively expensive. 
And this is sort of, in a way, how unfazed by things are. I said to, to Kev, my, my designer at one point in time, I said, Kev, what if this common becomes, like, seriously iconic 10 years from now we should probably have a chair in our back pocket just in case it ever becomes an icon (laughs) and that unfortunately has sent us off down a one-year road of trying to figure out how to do the chair for us um but uh, i will go to the table brian but chairs are fascinating because you don't know what angle they're going to get photographed at so they they have lines from every single possible direction but at the same point in time, every single one of those lines pertains to how it's going to function as an object, uh, which, you know, the whole form function adage is, is, is true in so many instances, but, but none more so in the chair, because most of the sexiest chairs that we investigated were shite to sit in, um, because they were an aesthetic project. Um, and that's, anyway, so chairs have been phenomenal. Tables. The chair, the, the first uh, images that I saw of that, the sort of the grayscale ones on, on your Instagram, I was instantly thinking that it, it, the frame is either going to be carbon fiber or it's going to be milled aluminum. And then uh, I saw the latest one and it looks very much like timber. How the uh, bloody hell are uh, you right now the plan is Right now the plan is uh, a blonde streaked American walnut uh, and we are going to machine it. Uh, we are regularly working just now with a 12-foot by 4-foot gantry mill with a Z-axis. Um, I've got like a 4-foot long um, Wengi, Wengi? Yeah. Uh, Concord uh, over, in, over in my kid's playroom right now because I haven't figured out how to mount it to the wall. But it was basically <laughs> a test of machining at that depth and right. with a bunch of surface change and everything. Um, that's definitely worth checking out as well if anybody wants to go back through Neil's Instagram so on this common you'll find the uh, there was one in Walnut as well wasn't there yeah hey imagine imagine a Concorde was massive and hanging from a ceiling wouldn't that just be a wild thing to do it would be why not this (laughs) like if it was like 18 meters long and had to be made in aluminum or something like that you know and then ended Um, up in like a hotel or something and it just and it just made a a fascination for a design firm and they kept on exploring concord forms (laughs) um it looks it looks really amazing uh, uh the table came along um this is the stealth table yeah Let's do sort of stealth table, and then I've done the, those automotive icons, the table with, the, with yep. the vehicles emerging from them. Stealth table came from me opening my big mouth. Um, there's a car collector who's quite a personality on Instagram. I lived in Irvine, California at the time. His name's Manny Koshpin. And he um, posted something that was... Uh, I think he had these four totally custom carbon fiber... I think they're Timothy Alton chairs, and he, he, you know, he posted some sort of uh, look at my amazing bespoke something something chairs, you know, like like a self congratulating in a way post, and I had a bit of a visceral reaction to it because uh, it was sitting next to some weird glass table, and I just said I just posted jump the balls to make a table to match those chairs. Um, and I mean he's had a million followers or something at the time I didn't know anything about him I just knew he had cars in Irvine he was in the same city as me and he actually replied back and he said do you have any skills to back up that statement and I was like (laughs) (laughs) alright and anyway anyway, we ended up meeting up and I took a bunch of panels of um, uh, aluminium and stuff with me so first first thing I didn't bother correcting it earlier that table's actually machined aluminium everybody thinks it's carbon fibre um, but it's actually satin acid etched uh, aluminum uh, that's all been honeycomb machined to be quite light. But it's that those are aluminum panels with a texture on them. Um, so How many it's panels all, in total? I don't know panels, but there's one uh, somewhere in the region of one thousand seven hundred pieces in it. Um, there's an entire internal structure of uh, uh, basically. A, well, this is what happens when you've got endless money in and decide you have an opinion on something. In the middle of the project, Manny decided there should be no centre leg. There were three legs to begin <laughs> with, and then he just decided it should not have the front one. And I was like, that's having a bit of an argument with physics. <laughs> and, nah, he, he was right, though, wasn't he? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so anyway, we ended up, there's this, this crazy internal truss system, and basically it all comes together, and then there's these two side panels on either leg that can come off, and they show you the whole internal structure. And there are 12-inch lag bolts down into his concrete floor that are holding it. Um, so it ain't moving, ever. Uh, it's it's going with the building, uh, basically. Uh, it's like one of these puzzles that when you put the last panel on, it's like done, you're like, oh, shit, I didn't plan out yet. Right. I don't know how the panel comes back off. It's on. Like, things are <laughs> <a> unit now. <laughs> um, but I'm really proud of that thing, actually. I mean, it was so much fun to do something themed, but also sexy. Um, and it's got this like nod to afterburners on the backside of it, which are actually shelves that drop down, and they're just as sculptural. Nobody will ever see them, but you know he tucks things away in them, and it's literally the afterburners and the stealth jet. And you obviously you obviously mix your your work between locally manufactured things and and things that are manufactured in the far east, correct? Uh, most anything that's large or, or I suppose in a way really impressive is made in the US. Uh, okay, so, so that stealth table dimen- would be fully US made? Santa Barbara, yeah. Yeah, wow. Uh, at a machine shop there and then brought down in the back of a flatbed truck. Um, yeah, I've not made anything... I've not made anything huge in a different country. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our very dense wood skill set is in Los Angeles. Machining is in uh, Santa Barbara and Los Angeles. Um, amazing cabinet maker in LA. Uh, Can you name, name drop which? Who's the cabinet maker that you that you use? Oh gosh, no, I've just forgotten because it's I'm I'm a proxy to it. But the, he's the, he's the guy. I mean, if you're building a home in in Malibu or in Sherman Oaks or you know if you're building one of these sort of blank check houses, he's the guy that does the 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 box work on the cabinets and everything. Um. So he's doing that huge lunar console that's on our uh, Instagram. It's the oh, yeah, it's all that, clad yeah. in yep. machined moon, but the back of it's all beautiful wood cabinet work, and those are panels yes. on it. Um, maybe it's a good time to switch tune completely, considering the time we've used up. I blab a lot. I talk. So <laughs> it, it's all good. <laughs> so you've mentioned a couple of times, essentially alluding to the fact that your clients are loaded. And you know, money's not really an issue, which is great. How now? Because we can kind of swing towards what you're doing now with these face masks as well. But how how are you seeing? Do you think your business is going to be crazy affected by what's happening in the world at the moment, or do you think your client base is just going to say, "Stuff it, carry on spending money"? Doesn't affect them like the rest of us. Well, yeah. actually, I'll tell you, um, we are only now at a turning point where some of these bespoke pieces actually make any money. So I have this awful habit of being an engineer, and if we charge seventy nine thousand dollars for a table, I get a bit carried away, and I spend seventy two thousand bucks making the table. <laughs> um, so these aren't like priced like art, which is. Um, something that I've had to get an awful lot better at. They're they're currently priced at my enthusiasm level of wanting to do them. Uh, so I haven't ever lost money on something, but, you know, the, you know, the first... Even you haven't ever lost money on one of the one of the bigger commissions, mate. That is such an achievement. Yeah, no, I actually haven't. If you haven't. were to lose money on something like that, you would have been on the street by now. That's <laughs> correct, and that's why you don't you don't make that error again. Small parts of strategy tucked away inside of me, um, but uh, they're the, you know even though these these guys have a high net worth, they don't like to just frequently in general don't like to just frequently spend it. They want to get a massive amount of value from that output. People don't just buy an eighty thousand dollar table on a whim. But they do buy an $80,000 table for the experience of being part of creating it and talking us through the stories of their cars or any of those things. Um, So will that change? Um, I'm actually guessing probably not, but that won't have an effect on our business because it's really not part of the the income of Discommon per se. It's, uh, It's nice when it works out. Um, but you know they're very carefully selected projects, and I base them now much more off of the people because I want a, a fun experience of creating those things with them. What will change our business for sure is the the stock market effect on things. So, to give you an example, we just finished a headphones design we've been working on for two years, and they got the contract to be the mm. headphones for Red Bull Formula One team. 
So our next project was to make the comms headphones for Red Bull's Formula One team. I don't even know if Formula One's going to be here in a year. Yeah, that's it. Um, Or startups that we're designing for. Um, You know, retainers getting ripped in half quite quickly. Not even necessarily because the company's doing badly, but because all of the investors' portfolios have ripped out and they've essentially forced the companies to pull back just in case. So that... um, I don't really know what this is going to do, but that is part of the reason why, as I think entrepreneurs, we have to be able to to divert. And we are working extremely hard on the client projects that we have. We've doubled down on a few of them. Um, For instance, with the headphones company, they're called Iris. We've just finished designing all of their packaging and we're actually going to become the manufacturer of all of their packaging right now because the design of it fits into our skill set as a manufacturer. So I've bought us a little bit of longevity or something there where it's, you know, one of these projects where we're going to be manufacturing for the, you know, for the the foreseeable future for their packaging. So the onus is on us to to parlay. Um, An entrepreneur is not a one trick pony. Like Brian uh, is an architect, right? But but you're not anymore, Brian, because you parlayed, right? And and there's there's elements, I think, for all of us that, that change. And so right now, you know, we touched on this at the beginning of it. Um, I, I went full swan dive into protective equipment for basically state of South Carolina. Um, initially, it was philanthropically. Uh, I was trying to just donate, I can't remember actually what number we were doing, some like 50,000 masks to the local hospital system. Uh, we already manufacture medical accessories in China. The factory had a sister factory that makes equipment. My guy in China sent me 800 masks to make sure my family was safe. I said, can you work with the factory? Can you get me 50,000 more? I showed up at um, basically a hospital system with them. And then 20 minutes later, I was in their purchasing department. And I said to them, like, I really, this would be incredible. Like with the network that we have and the skill set we have in Asia, if I could affect, with what you're saying, if I could affect the state, what an incredible thing to do. That would be so much fun to have a blanket effect of that. And I said to them, you know, I'm going to probably be using two guys full time in China. I have my designers and stuff. After the philanthropic bit, do you mind if I add a cent or two cents onto these things? Because this is a crazy time for everybody. If I could actually afford to give some security for my designers or that I just parlay this as my skill set into what is my work right now, um, do you think it's okay if I'm compensated in a minor way for that? And so right now we are so far under the price of anybody else trying to do this. Um, it's disgusting what's happening. I mean, it's literally heartbreaking. I just got I just got chills thinking about some of the things I've been seeing over the past two weeks. But also, we've had so much ordered that it will actually, if I actually land a bunch of this stuff into the US, it will actually protect my business for a while going forward, which is incredible. So I've done something that hopefully will help people, but it's also afforded my employees and, and the family a little bit of... Um, security if I execute it as planned I didn't mean to do that that just started I'm really surprised it surprises me that there's a a factory who who is a capability or already set up to make um, these face masks that's not already being just overwhelmed by other international demand it seems like there wouldn't be that many companies set up to be making hundreds of thousands a day or a week and you can just come in and order. It seems really strange to me that it's I didn't not come already in and order, though. I made I made a list. Uh, I'm so I'm currently working with forty seven people on it. Right. Um, my list of people working on this is forty seven deep, from CEO of UPS through to Boeing, through to um, massive medical factories, and I went full down. They're like, "All right, I got a network. I'm gonna use this." And we just went for it. And um, I've now got a business partner who's in Hong Kong on it. Um, we, I'm advising a charitable trust in North Carolina who, uh, as of basically, I think this evening, I'm probably going to get off this and we're going to wire funds to purchase three 
automatic mask making machines from the factory that I've been manufacturing with uh, in China, and they're going to go on when, a Boeing. Neil, just just hold up, hold up one second. When did you start? When did you decide that this was something that you were going to take on? I'm just trying to get my head around nine the days time ago. frame. Like <laughs> nine days ago. And I've been working on this probably 19 hours a day, which is why you said I looked tired when I came on the video call earlier. Um, but uh, it's amazing. Congratulations! But, but, it, but it's also insane what I'm seeing. Like I'm seeing there's a hedge fund in in San Francisco that has 500 million 3M masks in warehouses around the world, and they hedged on them. They started buying them at 50 cents when the China thing started and they won't sell them for less than $7. Our mask is a buck 60 um, because they're a hedge fund and they have 500 million of them and they are killing people by not by not helping with that. And, and when I realized that like hospitals were furloughing or put, laying people off to afford supplies... I've now I've never done anything before that had any form of life attached to it. We just make fancy stuff. And this is now just I mean I've said to Meg, my wife, like I'm so sorry, babe. I mean I'm I'm just gonna be gone for probably four weeks. I didn't I'm in, like I'm in the tidal wave. Um and now we're directly related to people having these things. Um there's a hospital in North Carolina that we're just bringing fifty thousand over for, but for some reason they got stuck in FedEx. And the the girl was in tears with me on the phone at six thirty this morning. Her nurses have no masks. I like that's actually my fault. It's not it's Chinese customs. They just stopped it. But um, so it's wild. Are you so you said you were going to buy these three machines? Is your plan to actually get them stateside and set up a, a manufacturing? Oh, yeah, so we got we got Boeing, um, like the plane company. <laughs> <laughs> they've given us their. Uh, it's called a dream picker. It's based off of a Dreamliner, but it's got a massive beluga whale nose on it, and it takes airplanes, and they're like, yeah, we've got gas, it's ready to burn. All right, we've got gas, we can burn it. It's in Charleston, we'll send it to Hong Kong. Can you truck the machines to Hong Kong? <laughs> it's like, wait, hold on, are we really having this conversation? Um, and, uh, this was like today's phone calls, and so they're basically... Sure, if you're bringing these over and it's a 501c charity that's taking those machines, let's roll. Let's get these things going. So now while they're at it, they're probably going to bring about three or four million masks over for South Carolina. Um, and there's game. Uh, four weeks ago, no, four weeks ago, four, yeah, it feels like four weeks ago. Four days ago, I put a Delta Airlines A350 on my Amex uh, a deposit for it. <laughs> I had to call Amex and ask them how much uh, I was allowed to put in a single purchase. And we use that Amex a lot for like client prototypes and stuff. So I quite often bill like $26,000 or something on it. If we've been doing a ton of 3D prints with a 3D printing company for a, for a bigger client or something. So it's not my money. It's going straight from the client through to yeah. them. But Amex is used to seeing these big charges. So they told me the number and I was like, right could probably do something with that <laughs> and, uh, and actually luckily since then I have cancelled that and, and it, it did all come back in it was just a hold <laughs> but once once the philanthropic plane side came on um, because listen joking aside that, that expense would have gone through to the hospital and and what that was they were there expecting to pay for shipping yeah. um, and they would have had to pay they would have paid anything to get the stuff over uh, but it was a massive relief for them when I got to cancel it because I'm equating all of this now to jobs, basically, that could be lost. Um, and that's what makes it so scary. So my immediate thought when when I saw... When I heard you talking about um, making these masks and, thought, and, and things, I thought, this is awesome. Is there not some crazy demand on the raw materials at this point? Like, how are you going about sourcing the material to actually make um, masks in this quantity well they're quite they're quite small which is yeah. helpful and it's actually quite easy for a mill to make you know massive non-stop rolls of what is basically a polyester or polypropylene um, fabric right. excuse me um, so I haven't seen a raw material uh, problem right now so plus the factories are maybe the factories are maybe shifting what they're producing like totally 
they've cut yeah yeah but also remember they started this in November for their own thing this is chapter two um so there were I mean China can make a pretty darn nice Rolex like they they're able to spin up factories pretty well to to to, to sort of catch up with things the Rolex point's a funny one but it's not that funny I mean the number of fake things you know, China's a minefield we've scrubbed through probably 55 factories and we're working with four of them that'll give you an idea and 40 of those I wouldn't have touched with a barge pole yeah we've talked about this on the show before yeah with the you know people often talk about uh, woodworking machines coming from you know um, you can get them a lot cheaper from the east and it's got this really bad connotation or you know stigma about it but the fact is there are some factories out there that do make very good quality woodworking machines so it's about finding the right factory not just blanketing them all as you know being rubbish knockoffs I have a very unpopular, in some cases, opinion of the fact that uh, China is far better than America or other countries at making certain things. Um, And it's absolutely, in my mind, idiocy to think otherwise. There's things that they can do that other people can't touch. Um, Composites, carbon fibre factories that I've seen in China that uh, everybody's like, no, Italy, you know, you'll never see anything like they do in Italy or, you know, what they achieve at Pagani or at Ferrari and stuff. Nah, man. Half the body panels of most of those cars are produced in two different factories uh, in uh, southern China and done so in the most gobsmacking manner uh, where, you know, there are just skill sets. Every high-end road bicycle that you'd ever ride on is done in, you know, starts its life off in in shopping carts going around as bits of carbon fibre and becomes these pieces of art. Uh, We just, we're in a global economy and the skill sets for things exist in all sorts of different places. And the tolerance for different kinds of work exists in different places. So America doesn't have the workforce mentality to wrap leather around plastic cell phone cases and edge finish it and do that to the tune of hundreds and thousands or if not millions of units a day. Like, like we just don't have factories with the number of workers that it requires to be using a popsicle stick to be wrapping that leather and doing it it's just not a labor type of thing that we would do here and if we did the price would be so exorbitant that nobody would be able to purchase it so uh, i'm not a i'm not a champion for china but i'm a champion for a global for global industry because there's different skill sets everywhere just an interesting side note on this um i think we've spoken about it before about australia's ip laws on uh, producing furniture and the fact that Australia is one of the only markets for knockoff replica in inverted commas furniture in the world. So there are huge factories set in China that can't even sell their produce in China. So it gets shipped to Australia. So one of these one of these stores uh, has obviously closed its uh, bricks and mortar stores and they're selling online and they're now looking to sell the business because they don't see a financial recovery from it. Um, the Australian Design Alliance are the ones really um, lobbying government to try to get the IP laws changed. They posted an Instagram post about this store potentially being closed and saying, you know, it's a good thing for Australian designers. Instagram suspended their account. <laughs> Holy crap. They've, they've, closed, they've closed their account. So, I don't know. Nobody can really post about it, but I can say it in the podcast. What are they wow. So it's Matt Blatt. Matt Blatt has been... Uh, been looking to sell up and it would be a fantastic thing if Australians learned to stop buying cheap knockoff furniture from China. I don't like I'm so with you on this Neil that if the manufacturing ability in China is better and it makes sense to get stuff made really well and originally designed the way you do and make stuff there that is a step forward and that's what we've got to learn from this like if we're going to continue to make stuff in an international market, we have to be making quality stuff, not just making crap. Yeah, but, but to me, you know, in a way, what you're discussing there is, is it's related and completely unrelated to China because you are a craftsman. What people need to do is, is support the creation of, of new things when possible. So when, when you are creating beautiful pieces of art, you know, when... When I remember when you were doing the bushfire table and, and you and I were having that harebrained conversation about me trying to bid on it and and I, it wasn't it wasn't about 
that I needed a table or I was out looking for a table. I just wanted to be part of something that was being created. Um, and yes, there are awful things that happen in Asia. There's awful things that happen. I mean, some of the stuff that's been knocked off of mine comes out of some incredible machine shops in the US and in the UK. You know, they're like, oh, good idea. You know, we'll do one of those. It's an ins- inspired by Discommon. Um, but <laughs> uh, 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 originality is sort of shit upon everywhere in certain ways. Um, but it, it is sad when governments or especially large corporations don't uh, say that's unacceptable. You know, that that whatever that brick and mortar store is, you know, if they'd had real courage, they would have come... I'll name, I'll name drop it again, Matt Blatt. So if Matt Blatt had come to you and six other designers in Australia and said, we've got a factory totally. that is epic totally. at knocking shit off, yep. can you all put out five original things for us? Yep. The entire we'll pay is different. You, we'll pay you $2 a piece. We'll pay you a design fee up front and we'll give you 50 cents per piece that gets sold. And there is how to shift your business model rather than and, just creating and the it was same being made cheap in China. knockoff shit. It was being made in China and it was affordable for everybody. It was being made in Vietnam or wherever it was being made. Yep. But you just, ink, just take the business model and just yep. jolt it a little bit and now it becomes like an Australian icon in a way. Yeah. Instead of something yeah. rather, than, really cool. rather than just creating knockoff Ames chairs, you're actually using the original Ames business model of creating using yeah. mass production and original designs to produce things that are worthwhile having. Yeah, it's just it's a really interesting conversation. I know you've gone through a lot of issues with with people knocking your stuff. That yeah, it's it's just good to hear your point of view on it. I think as creatives, it's just on you to you just have to keep driving forward. Safety yeah. second. <laughs> yeah, I saw that shirt. Just keep on. Cool. <laughs> Honestly, guys, I'm pretty sure this might be my pajamas. I'm not, I, I've, I've been working so flat out on the mask stuff. I'm not sure if I've washed today. I did work out this morning. I do remember that, so that's a good start. But like, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm on autopilot right now. Oh, we should, we should let you get some sleep, man. <laughs> yeah. So once the once all this uh, the COVID nineteen stuff dies off. Um, What's going to happen to, I mean, this is obviously your current project. Um, what's after that? You know, what's, obviously all the machines and stuff are going to go away, not going to be needed. What's the plan? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I, no, I, you have to, you have to believe. Well, so, okay, I'll tell you one interesting thing that's come out of this is the number of new connections I've made. The number of people that have said, oh my gosh, so I know the CEO of UPS or the person at GE or somebody at Boeing, let me put you in touch with them and tell them what you're doing. And so now, just in the past nine days, the number of connections and people I've even spoken to that have been fascinating are are astonishing. Today, it was an incredible building developer down in Florida who was wanting to help out a hospital system. And I bet I'll reach back out to him and show him some of the architectural sort of wall stuff that we've done. Um, I think that'll happen. I think the way you talk about your each each project being a business card for your next each project being a business card for your next project, like doing something of this scale so quickly and showing how maneuverable your company is is gonna really lead you like to a load of jobs in the future. Um I I hope so. I think maybe that's sometimes where my strategy I, I live a very current business life. I dream about things I want to do in a business and I think about it a lot, but I also don't try and stay locked to a plan. If you ask me what my five-year plan is, I could give you like I could give you ballpark things, but um, I also would be completely relaxed if it had changed totally uh, over the course of that time. That's just part of the adventure we're all on. That's probably a very, very good place to, uh, to end it on that uh, sentiment. Um, yeah, thanks for being on the show, Neil. It's been a very cool to hear stories like this. Um, Thanks for letting yeah, me blabber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. That's right. We don't have to do too much then. I said, I said, I said to Brian, I hope I don't come across as a knob, but um, I've been very fortunate. I've, I've had an awful lot of fun experiences and it's, it's great to share them. And, and uh, I don't know, it's a bit strange to me still, but if at some point in time I can never be a little bit of an inspiration to let people, first of all, critique their dreams and their plans but then strategically ex- execute them. Man, to, to hear if one person does that would be a pretty wild thing to, you know, go 
go to bed at the end of the life on and and know that at least you'd affected something would be would be cool. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. All right, so to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really does help us out. The Shopstall Podcast is available on iTunes and most podcasting apps. My name is Robin Lewis. Joey and Brian, thanks for hanging out. Neil, thank you very much again for joining us on the show. Take care, everyone, and we will see you in the next one. Thanks, guys. See ya. See you guys.